Awesome. How are you, church? You can grab your seat. You are noisy this morning. We give you free cake and you just lose all your inhibitions. A bit of restraint in the house wouldn't go astray. Hope you're doing well. We are in the fourth and final week of a series that we have titled, This Is Us. And uh, Pastor Kerry, you said that we've got cake for everyone. I sure hope that we're going to have, because the cake that they brought out... It's probably not going to feed everyone, so maybe we'll see a miracle this morning. Maybe we'll get Pastor Brendan in his 70th year to lay hands on that cake and multiply it and feed the 5,000. Vision, values, and culture, and we are talking culture this morning. Culture can simply be defined as this is how we do things here. This is how we do things here. Here, everywhere we go, culture is there. Culture is evident in your home. Culture is evident in your family. Culture is evident in workplaces, in schools, in cities, and in countries. Ten years ago, in fact, I took an overseas trip with my brothers to one of the most dangerous cities in the world. And what we discovered was a different culture of how they do things differently to Australia. And so we discovered that part of their culture was to have guards at the hotel with semi-automatic rifles. That was a cultural difference. They had night curfews where you couldn't go out past 6pm, which my brother and I really struggled with because from our hotel room we could see the equivalent of a super rooster. It was so close that we could touch that chicken roll, but of course we couldn't go out at night. And of course, we have culture in church. If you're a Gen Z or you're a millennial, you might call it not culture, but you might call it a vibe. We have good vibes and and bad vibes. In fact, on our Friday nights at youth ministry, we have a thing that we call a vibe check. A vibe check is where usually one of the senior leaders will hop up and just remind the kids about culture, of how we do things here which means when you hold hands, you might get pregnant, part of our culture. (laughs) Listen to what Dr. Sam Chan said, who is, in my opinion, an absolute expert on church culture. He said, it is the atmosphere in which the church functions. It is the prevalent attitude. It is the collage of spoken and unspoken messages. Creating and cultivating culture in any organisation, in any community, including the church, requires deliberate and intentional decisions. You never have a healthy culture by accident. It's intentional and it's deliberate. Churches with a strong and defined culture make it easy for people to determine whether they love it or whether they hate it. I think churches that possibly sit on the fence and are a little bit beige, a little bit grey, make it really, really hard for people to figure out, do I love this or do I hate this? And often in the foyer after the service is when we get to understand when we're talking to people, whether they're new to the service or new to the community or whether they've been here for a little while and a myriad of different conversations where people are like, I love it. You guys hardly talk about money. There's like a 10-second blurb in your service about money. That's a cultural thing. And then there'll be others that will say, you know what, you didn't do this enough, or the song was too loud, or the lights were too bright. Culture. And what I love about our church, 
is that our key cultural pillars are formed and found in Scripture. There are other things, I will say this, I will put this disclaimer out, there are other things that we do as a church, as part of our culture, that aren't found in Scripture. They are simply a preference or a bias. For example, most of our songs are 120 beats per minute, I think. I think I've got that right. But we like sort of energetic praise and worship. We like people to engage with that. There are other churches, neither right nor wrong, that prefer more of a 40 beats per minute. Neither right, neither wrong. We clap for new people at this church. That's just one of the things we do. I think it's weird sometimes, but it's part of our cultural thing. We do real coffee. We do not do Nescafe Nescafe 43. And some would argue that that is biblical. But our three key cultural pillars are formed and found in Scripture. And then to wrap up this series, we're going to have a look at those three cultural pillars because this is how we do things here at Civic. Is that okay? Here's the first one. Grace before truth. Look what it says in John chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here we need to recognize and observe the order in which John chapter 1 articulates how Jesus came. It was grace and truth. Grace before truth. What is grace? Grace is unearned favor. It's acceptance without the fine print or strings attached. What is truth? Truth is the unwavering, uncompromising, unyielding absolutes of God's Word. It is objective, not subjective. So what we're talking about when we say grace and truth, we're not talking about your version of truth. We're talking about God's truth, grace and truth. And during His time on earth, Jesus modelled grace before truth in a variety of different settings. The one that possibly springs to mind the quickest is when there is a woman caught in adultery. She is dragged before the townspeople, She is caught in the act of adultery and they bring her before Jesus. Jesus scribbles something in the dirt to face the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the time and they're ready to stone her. They're ready to throw rocks at her as the law demanded. We don't know what Jesus wrote in the sand, in the dirt that day. But then he turns to the woman caught in adultery and he says to her, where are your accusers? She replies, they've disappeared. Jesus says, is there no one here to condemn you? And she says, there's none. And he says, neither do I. And right there is the grace. But then straight away, straight after the grace, he says, go and sin no more. And there is the truth. Jesus doesn't excuse the sin. Jesus addresses it, but before he addresses it, he brings grace, he brings acceptance, he brings unearned favour and love without any strings attached. Grace and truth in action. And when grace and truth work hand in hand, it deals with not only shame and guilt, but it also deals with pride. You can't have grace without truth, and you can't have truth without grace. This understanding of grace before truth, for centuries, in fact, in the history of the church, it has the potential to divide. There's those in the truth camp, 
that would scream and shout, they need the truth, pastor. We've watered down the gospel for too long. We've created these seeker-sensitive churches. They need the truth. And then there would be those in the grace camp that would say, you know what, God's just cool with everything. It's not either or, it's both. Grace and truth. Pastor Brennan said this quote recently and I jotted it down very quickly and he said this, grace always leads people to truth, but truth will very rarely lead people to his grace. Notice the order. Grace leading people to truth. If we start with the truth, often it won't lead to God's grace. It's grace before truth. But pastor, aren't you concerned that if you, that if you preach grace, people will just throw off restraint in their inhibitions? Wouldn't it be easier to control a community of people through rules, regulations? And the answer, of course, is yes, absolutely it would be. But let me ask you this, are hearts actually changing or are we simply just modifying external behaviour with rules? Are we trying to get people to follow God by motivating them through fear or control? I just, when I see the heart of Jesus, I just don't see that's how he went about reaching people. And the great thing about Grace Before Truth as one of our key cultural pillars, church, is that you will see this at work when we do pastoral care, when we care for people, when they're dealing with life's issues, whether it be addictions, whether it be a whole range of issues, it's always Grace Before Truth. You will never hear a civic pastor telling you what to do. We will talk about God's grace and allow God's grace to outwork in your life until you get to a place where you're ready to accept the truth. See, when I tell you to do something, we call it religion. But when the Holy Spirit does the leading through God's grace, it's a whole different story. Titus chapter 2 says this, For the grace of God has, appe- has appeared that offers salvation to all people, giving us the power to say no to ungodliness. Did you hear it? It was for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people, giving us the power to say no to ungodliness. Well, how, how, how do you get people to stay within the boundaries, pastor? The grace of God. The grace of God. Not more rules. Not more regulations. Not if you do this, then you'll be excluded from heaven. That does not work. That's what Jesus came to do away with. See, I don't obey God to be accepted. Hear me. I'm accepted by grace and therefore I want to obey. Huge difference in understanding God's heart. I don't follow God to be loved. I'm loved by grace and therefore my natural response over time is I want to follow God's way. Now that's not an overnight process. That can take time. I'm not saved by doing good deeds. I'm saved by grace and good deeds on my life are the fruit. And when we mix the order and when we go straight to the truth, we often negate the grace at work in someone's life. Pastor, did you see them? They were smoking cigarettes. You should have seen what they used to smoke. They're on a journey. (laughs) Pastor, I saw them with a six-pack of alcohol. You know what? That's progress. Grace is at work at their life. They used to drink a carton. 
And when we go straight to truth, we negate the journey that they've been on with grace, leading them to the truth. It's not an overnight process, friend. Constantly leading us. There is no doubt that God's truth, though, is offensive. Offensive to the self and offensive to the soul. Our unredeemed sinful nature. But here's the reality. As I grow in grace, I need the Holy Spirit to constantly contradict me and constantly correct me in my life. Grace and truth working hand in hand. That's the first key cultural pillar. Is that okay? Here's the second one. Wisdom and faith. James chapter 3 verse 13 says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. You know, the word faith forms so much of our relationship with Christ. It's, it's the core of what we do. And yet often in churches, we misuse it or we reduce it to a formula to try and control God on our terms. So if I exercise enough faith, I'll get what I want. If I have enough faith, then everything's going to be smooth sailing with very little inconvenience or interruption to my perfect life. Or potentially in Pentecostal and charismatic circles, we have a hyper-faith approach where the existence of, of suffering and doubt and sickness should not be in our vocab because we should be healed from everything. The problem with that approach is that when God doesn't fulfill or meet our expectations, doesn't follow the formula, we become disappointed and disillusioned with God. God didn't come through for us like I thought he would. I think sometimes we say things like this in church, well, I'm stepping out in faith to justify our foolishness. A great deal of pain and heartache and misery has happened to homes, families and marriages and churches and people's lives because someone decided to step out in faith. And I'm not here to discount the power of faith. But I think there needs to be some parameters around it. The Bible says that faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The Word of God, the Rema Word of God. But that's where most of us stop reading. I've got to get a word from God, so I've got to go to the Bible, and I 100% agree with you. But James chapter 3 offers a different angle and a different facet, and we read it in the full context, which we should always do whenever we open the Scriptures. He gives us another facet to walking in faith. Yes, the faith is sourced from God's Rema word, but then it is grown from patience and it's guided by wisdom. Faith sourced from God's word, grown from patience and guided by wisdom. Life is full of risks. You and I would both agree on that. But here's where James helps us. Do all risks in life, do they have to be Risky. Over the years, there's been countless times where I've had to face decisions which held significant risks for not only me, but my family's lives. But I knew I could proceed with absolute confidence, free from fear because of patience and because of wisdom. I believe that when faith is exercised with patience and wisdom, it takes the risk out of risky. For, for, for too long, we have, we've had cowboys in the church that have just stepped out in faith and they've just left a trail of destruction behind them because, hey, I've just got the faith. Yeah, but what about patience and wisdom? I've just got the Word. I've heard from God. I'm not discounting or disagreeing with you. But can we grow it from patience and can it be guided by wisdom? 
patience and wisdom, church. Act as your guardians when it comes to decisions and choices. And the thing, I guess what you could feel safe and secure in is that I have seen this very key cultural pillar operate at a leadership and a governance level in this church. So yes, we receive the faith and the Rema Word of God from the Scriptures, of course. But we're not going to be making impulsive and emotive decisions, jumping left, right and centre and leading the church down a garden path on, on a word. There'll be patience and wisdom. Not only in a church context, in a community, but only also for your life. Maybe you've received a word from God. Can I encourage you? Because this is what I do. I make time to sit with my spiritual father and I talk about him. Uh, I, we talk about it and often he'll say, you know what, can we just park that? Can we just sit? You know what that is? It's annoying, but it's wisdom. It's wisdom. It's patience at work. Receive a word from God, but let's not be impulsive and emotive. That's not how faith works. Let's seek wisdom. And let it grow in patience. Grace before truth, wisdom and faith. And here's the third key cultural pillar. Shining over talking. That's a weird phrase. Shining over talking. Look what Matthew chapter 5 verse 16 says. Jesus speaking. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Shine before others. You know, the best gospel that we can preach, church, is a demonstration, not an explanation. The best gospel that you can preach is not on a Sunday morning on a platform with a microphone in your hand. The best gospel that you can preach is in your workplace. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I have a sense that the world is weary of words. Talk is cheap. And there's a lot of cynicism and distrust in the world, particularly around churches. You know how we can earn some of that credibility or that trust back with the community? It's not by an explanation, but a demonstration. Not proclaiming our values and proclaiming the kingdom of God, but by simply shining rather than talking. You know, when a book that was intended to reveal Christ becomes an obstacle, it's not the Bible's fault. It's ours. May no one reject Christ because of how we've presented Him with our words. And how do we, how do we present Christ? What's, what, what's the method for presenting Christ? Well, you know, Let's share those weird photos on Facebook, like, can Jesus get a thousand likes and you'll get to heaven? Have you seen those? Yeah, that's a, that's a great strategy to reach people. That's winning hearts right there. Or maybe we could just start serving and loving our community the way Christ did, shining before talking. It's one thing to proclaim the kingdom of God, but the real substance to your faith is when the kingdom starts to outwork in your life. And the fruit comes from that. You know, we were just singing a song 
at the start, at the, the, the first song that we sang, and there was a line in there. And it says, it's not time to be silent, don't you dare hide your light. And that sounds a little bit contradictory to what I'm trying to say. Thanks very much, creative team. But perhaps the brightness of our light needs to be turned up, not the volume of our voices. The church has always been known for raising our voice, but maybe it's time to start raising the brightness of our light rather than our voices. John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. How are we doing with that church? Not just our church, but the church. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In other words, the love that you and I have should be a testimony to the world that when they look at a community located on 258 Spring Street, they're like, man, I don't know how that works. They're all so diverse and different. They've got different backgrounds, different generations. But something, there's something intangible that happens in that place where their love for one another will prove that we are His disciples. How are we doing with that church? Grace before truth, wisdom and faith, and shining over talking. These are the three key cultural pillars of civic church. There's probably more, but they are the three main ones in terms of who we are in our culture. We have a vision. We have values, which... Pastor Jenny and Pastor Kerry have done a brilliant job of articulating over the last two weeks. Six values of our church and three key cultural pillars. The reason why we designed this series and put this series out over the last four weeks was to, A, to put some language around who we are as a church, but to also help you understand what you're a part of. Now, some of you might be sitting in your seats, you're like, I love this. I love, the, I love now that we've got some language that we can hang our hat on and I know exactly what sort of church I'm a part of. But then there might be others that might feel a little bit uncomfortable, like, well, I don't, I don't know whether I signed up for this. And that's cool too. But I would hope that as you go away from here, that we've made it really, really apparent and clear of who we are as a church and who we feel God has called us to be as a church and how we continue to express God's heart for this world. I'll finish with this thought. There's this quote around culture and vision. And it says this, culture eats vision for lunch every day. What does that mean? This is what it means. We can have one of the most profound vision statements the world has ever seen. We can wordsmith it and it can be, when we read it, we're like, yes, amazing. That describes exactly what we feel God has called us to do. But if we don't have the culture that reinforces that vision statement, it's just words. 
It's just an empty statement that we might put up on a wall and we see it every Sunday and we look at it. No, the, the true power of a vision statement is actually found in the culture of the community and the organisation. And who's responsible for that culture? Well, you might say, well, the pastors are, or the leadership team, or the church board, those guys. And to be honest, there's a little bit of truth in that. But it's our responsibility as a community to own that culture. Grace before truth, wisdom and faith, shining before talking. That culture is owned by the people. We all take a responsibility for that. Churches can have the greatest vision, greatest vision statement, but without the culture to support it, I can guarantee you it will never be fulfilled. Would you stand with me, church? This is us. This is who we are as a church. If anything, I pray that the last four weeks has affirmed to you, you know what, God? I'm so thankful for this church. I don't know about you, but when I think about the people that make up this church and what this church is, I'm just so grateful as an individual, not just as a pastor or as a staff, but as an individual. I'm so grateful for this community. I'm so grateful for our culture. I'm so grateful for where God is leading us as a church. I genuinely believe that our greatest days are ahead as a church. This is us. And so God, we thank you. As we've been singing this morning, you deserve all the glory. All our efforts and all our sacrifices are not for Civic's glory, are not so that we can promote the brand Civic. God, it's so that people might know the name of Jesus. God, you're building your church. You're building a community right here. God, continue to give us hearts of gratitude for what this church is, for what this group of people, men and women of faith. And the one constant that brings us all together is not that we all live in Toowoomba, but it's you. It's you that brings us together. And may we always keep you front and centre of who we are as a church. May you always get the glory and we keep none for ourselves. For the stories that will come from this place, may they be all for your glory. The testimonies, the lives that are still yet to come into this building, may it be all for your glory, not civics. that you have given us the incredible privilege to be a part of your church. God, may we be reminded that it's grace before truth, that it's wisdom and faith working together. And God, even this week, that it's shining before talking.
Let us demonstrate the gospel before articulating it. In Jesus' incredible name. Amen. Amen. Aren't you grateful for God? Come on, let's give Him a hand this morning.